Good morning, CCV. My name is Kayla Posadas, and our reading is from the Gospel of Mark. Buenos días, familia de CCV. Mi nombre es Kayla Posada, y nuestra lectura de hoy va a ser del libro de Marcos. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salmon, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will await the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciple and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said to, nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Cuando pasó el sábado, María Magdalena, María la madre de Jacobo y Salome, compraron especies aromáticas para ir a ungir el cuerpo de Jesús. Muy de mañana, el primer día de la semana, apenas salió el sol, se dirigieron al sepulcro, iban diciéndose a unos a otras, ¿Quién nos quitará la piedra de la entrada del sepulcro? Pues, era, pues la piedra era muy grande. Pero al fijarse bien, se dieron cuenta que estaba corrida. Al entrar al sepulcro, vieron a un joven vestido con un manto blanco, sentado a la derecha, y se asustaron. No se asusten, les dijo. Ustedes buscan a Jesús el Nazareno, el que fue crucificado. Ha resucitado. No está aquí. Miren el lugar donde lo pusieron. Pero vayan a decirles a los discípulos y a Pedro, Él va delante de ustedes a Galilea. Ahí lo verán, tal como les dijo. Temblorosas y desconcertadas, las mujeres salieron huyendo del sepulcro. No dijeron nada a nadie porque tenían miedo. The word of the Lord. Today is Easter Sunday. The claim of Easter, the claim of Christianity about Easter, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead bodily physically, actually rising from the dead, is the central event of all of history. Now, our modern ears hear that, say Jesus rose from the dead bodily, and think it's probably just a myth, a legend that was made up years later. And yet, all of Jesus' original followers, the ones who actually knew him and walked around with him, as well as all of Christianity for 2,000 years around the globe, have claimed not only did Jesus rise from the dead bodily, but also without it, Christianity ceases to be good news. It becomes a lie. So what actually happened? Well, let's look again at that, the first two verses of Mark 16 that Kayla just read. Here's what we get so we kind of understand a little bit about the, the setup here. When the Sabbath was passed, the Sabbath was Saturday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So something happened. Something happened on that first Sunday, that Easter Sunday. Something happened that changed everything for those original followers and for the whole of the world. Now, when we look back on it, we think, okay, something might have happened, but probably not a dead person rising. But back then, people were a little more credulous. They were a little more primitive. They believed in myths and magic and all sorts of things. 
And they probably kind of made up these stories or sort of imagined that Jesus rose and everyone bought into it. But there's, of course, an element in that of chronological snobbery, meaning we're so much smarter, so much wiser. We know these things that they don't know, as if back 2,000 years ago, they didn't know that dead people stayed dead. But they knew it. They were very aware that dead people stayed dead. They did not believe in resurrection any more than we do, but maybe for slightly different reasons than we do, because they were in a different worldview, a different set of contexts. But here's one of the evidences for Jesus possibly rising from the dead, is that the Gospel of Mark, which is being recorded here, was written within 20 or so years after Jesus. So like I think back about when I was in college or high school, it was about 30 years ago, and I could tell you stories about then and tell them just like I saw them, right? So this is written 20, 30 years after Jesus. And what he keeps talking about in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling all of his disciples before he gets crucified, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be executed, and then on the third day, rise. And then he says it again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be executed, and on the third day, rise from the dead. So he's telling his disciples this again and again and again. The Gospel of Mark records it at least three times, which is usually indicative of a Hebrew way of writing that said he just kept talking about it. It seems like that was all he was talking about. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and on the third day, rise again. But in those first two verses, what do those women do on that first Sunday morning? That third day is the way they accounted for it. You know what they do? They're going to the tomb with spices to anoint a dead body. They have bought these spices, expensive spices, in order to do a proper burial for Jesus, who they saw crucified. All three women are recorded to be at the crucifixion and to see the tomb that he was laid in. So they go to that tomb with anointing spices to kind of embalm, but that wasn't quite what they did, a dead body. They go expecting a dead body, even though they'd heard Jesus talking about this third day. And on top of that, he had these disciples who'd gone around with him for years, and they'd heard him say, I'm going to die and on the third day rise again. Wouldn't you think that maybe at least one of the disciples on that Sunday would have been like, it's the third day. He was just crucified, like he said. It's now the third day. Maybe we should go and check it out. Maybe there's something to what he said. Shouldn't we at least go and see if maybe he rose from the dead? What can it hurt, right? But none of them are there. No one goes except these women because they're expecting the body to still be dead. They didn't believe in resurrections any more than we do. And on top of that, something happened on that first Sunday to cause them to change their entire worldview, their entire way of doing things. And it's interesting what they do and don't do. Do you know what the the early disciples did? They did something very un-Jewish and un-Hebrew. They forgot where Jesus' tomb was. So the Jewish people and Hebrew people made monuments of almost everything. They knew where Abraham had been buried 1,500 years earlier. They knew where Joseph had been buried also about 1,300 years earlier. They knew where Jacob, over 1,000 years earlier, had dug a well. They made monuments anytime one of their famous people did anything famous. Jesus rises from the dead, or dies, let's just say he dies, according to some of our thinking. He dies, they bury him in this tomb. Shouldn't they have made a monument of it? Shouldn't it have been a place they went to week in and week out? But within weeks, no one cared. Within years, everyone had forgotten where the tomb was. It didn't matter. Something different about that tomb. And then it's the Sabbath. 
You know, a Jewish person, to a Jewish person in the first century, the Sabbath was the highest of holy days. The entire worldview and system of life of a Jewish person was centered around their weekly observance of the Sabbath. The end of the week, the Saturday when you rested, it was the day of worshiping God. So the entire economic, family, community, religious structures were built around Sabbath being central to their rhythms of life. And yet, within days and weeks, they began, these Jewish people who started to believe Jesus rose from the dead began observing Sunday as a sacred day. So much so that within a couple of years, Saturday had been eliminated as part of a Sabbath and Sunday had replaced it by primarily Jewish followers of Jesus. Sunday became a sacred and holy day because something happened on that first Sunday in Easter. And on top of that, Think about their worship. The Jewish people were absolute monotheists. They were so against idolatry and pagan idolatry that they were considered strange in that ancient world because everyone else was pagan. They worshiped deities and they even worshiped people as idols or gods. The Caesar considered himself semi-divine. A faithful Jew, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago here, a faithful Jew would not even carry a coin called a denarius because it had an image of Caesar on it with an inscription claiming he was semi-divine. To even have that in your pocket was to be unfaithful. And yet, these very same faithful Jewish people within weeks began talking about Jesus whom they worshipped. They were worshipping this man, Jesus, as God. And that became central to Christian understanding. Something happened on that first Sunday. And then think about this. There were other messiahs. You know that messiah claims were pretty normal in that ancient world. Lots of people claimed to be messiahs, meaning they were going to come and overthrow the powers of the evil people, which were the Romans at this point. Every one of those other messiahs would gather a group of people, storm Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans maybe for a little bit, but eventually be caught executed, and then their movement ended. Judas the Galilean, you heard of his movement, his global movement that's still spreading? No, because he died after claiming to be the Messiah. He probably was crucified too, but he didn't rise. Other messiahs would claim something, be caught, executed, and their movement would end. But Christianity began to spread slowly at first, but it spread across the Roman Empire until a couple hundred years later, it had conquered Rome, not by force, but by proclamation. And the central proclamation was these first eyewitnesses and everyone who followed claiming Jesus died and rose from the dead. The resurrection was the central event, not only of Christianity, but all of history they were claiming. Okay, so the bigger question is this, so what? Let's say, let's just go for a, you know, I'm trying to give you evidence on why you could believe in Christianity or the resurrection, but let's just assume for a minute Jesus did rise from the dead. For those of you who maybe buy into that, what difference does that make? Why is it important? Why is it significant? Four things, hope, joy, peace, and love. These are the ones that I came up with, so you're going to have to listen to me on them. The first is hope, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 again to give us some more context. The women entered the tomb, and they saw a young man sitting on the right side in the tomb, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he, 
said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Do not be alarmed. He was crucified. Yes, he was crucified, but he is risen. Jesus' resurrection gives us the power to face the worst in life without fear, to endure the greatest sufferings with hopefulness. If you have lived more than 10 or 15 years, you've probably experienced some version of suffering or heartache or difficulty. But because Jesus rose from the grave, because he died and rose, there's a couple things we can know. We can know, first of all, that your suffering, whatever you've gone through in life, is not because God doesn't love you or might not have a purpose for it you can't understand. Even his own son endured horrible suffering. And on top of that, the resurrection of Jesus points to something far greater. It points to the resurrection of all things. See, Christianity has a hope that is very this-worldly. If, if you don't believe in any religious thing or any God, then the end of this life is the end. It's just your 30, 50, 70 years, the end, sorry. If you believe in other religions, most of them have some sort of an, a disembodied bliss, an evaporating into the universe type thing. Christianity's belief is in a resurrection and a restoration of this creation. And it tells us that this life is not all there is. And yet, God wants to do something in this world and in our bodies and in this life that is going to be redeemed and resurrected in a way that brings hope and joy to anybody dealing with great suffering. Johnny Erickson Tata has been a paraplegic since she was a teenager when she was in a diving accident at a swimming hole with friends. And so she's lived her whole life without feeling from the neck down. And yet having a faith in God and his sovereignty and goodness with a hope pointed towards the resurrection. Here's what she wrote talking about the hope of the resurrection. She writes, I with shriveled bent fingers and atrophied muscles and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Jesus' resurrection gives us hope to face the greatest of suffering. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, is the, the apostle, is dealing with all sorts of suffering and grief and sadness and heartache. And he describes it in a way that doesn't really match because he he's t- has his eyes fixed on the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but the resurrection and, re- and restoration of all things at the end of time. He talks about his suffering. He says, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, that word light and momentary is being applied to himself. And if you know anything about Paul, the apostle, the actual person who was around in the 40s and 50s AD, he dealt with an entire lifetime of suffering. Do you know that because he followed Jesus, all of his friends and family abandoned him? He was time and again arrested usually falsely arrested, and often beaten mercilessly. Jesus was flogged before he was crucified. Paul had been flogged multiple times. They had tried to execute Paul. They had actually, uh, it said they stoned him, which is literally they threw him in a pit, surrounded it, picked up rocks the size of like, you know, baseballs or softballs, and chucked it at him until he stopped moving and as far as they knew, stopped breathing. He wasn't dead, but do you think he felt good for a couple of weeks? 
Probably not. He'd been shipwrecked, abandoned, hungry, in dungeons. And he's, what's his description of his life? This light and momentary affliction. Because his eyes are fixed on what Jesus did in the resurrection and the hope that that gave him as he faced his own suffering with joy. Catholic mystic and nun from the 16th century, Teresa of Avila, summed it up in this way that is slightly worded, maybe different than this in other ways that it's written down, but she said, from heaven, even the most miserable life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. I really do not like horror movies. I don't like horror movies. There's a genre of horror movie that involves getting lost in the woods or driving along, your car runs out of gas and, oh, like go up to the house over there to get some gas. Or you stop at a hotel in the middle of nowhere because there's no place to stay. And it usually ends with chainsaws being started or axes being brought out and I want nothing to do with it. A number of years back when my kids were about like five, seven, and nine, we were trying to put together a last-minute vacation that involved some camping and some staying at hotels up in the Northeast. After a very long day of driving that also involved the Ben and Jerry's factory, it was great fun, we got to the end of the day and we got to the campsite, the uh, campground that I had set up for us. It was like a reserved space, but I'd never done this sort of camping before. I pulled in and I realized that this was not a national park. This was not a state park. This was somebody's property, and their house was right there. So we got out and set up camp. I'm not sure if there was anyone else on the property. And we introduced ourselves and set up camp and kept to ourselves. My kids kind of tried to figure out what to do with the whole space. There was a boy there that was walking around with a, a bucket, just walking around with a bucket. He was about 10 or 11, just walking around with this bucket. It wasn't like there was somebody on the front porch with no eyebrows playing a banjo, but it felt a little bit uneasy. We had dinner, went to bed that night. And we'd been camping a couple of other times. And when you go camping with kids especially, do you know how long it takes to get out in the morning? I mean, it takes hours, right? Because you've got to, like, make food and take kids to the bathroom and get dressed and, and then clean up and then roll up sleeping bags and uh, everyone's moaning, break down the tent, about the time that the sun started to rise, everyone in our tent, our whole family, woke up. No one said a thing, rolled up tents, broke down the, the everything, had it packed in the car, and we were pulling away in 20 minutes. <laughs> we didn't speak for an hour and a half till we crossed the Massachusetts border. And then one of the kids said something about, that was a strange place. And we kept talking about, apparently in the middle of the night, Sarah was having dreams. I'd gone to the bathroom. She had this kind of dream or imagining she woke up and that I had escaped, driven away, and they were now there going to be murdered. And years later, we look back and laugh. Remember the bucket boy? Remember that crazy place? Remember when you were going to have us murdered because you ran away? That was your dream. That wasn't real. If all of life, if your whole life is suffering, if it is hardship, and if it is unfair life, but your hope is in the resurrection, it is nothing more than an inconvenient stay at a strange campground in Vermont that you will be able to look back on and laugh about. Think about that. Jesus' body had scars. Did you know that? 
he rises from the dead and he has holes in his hands and in his feet. In the resurrection, in eternity, he still has scars from his crucifixion, his greatest suffering. It's an indication that our greatest sufferings will be resurrected and redeemed one day. Because Jesus rose from the dead, one day your suffering, all the griefs that you are bearing, even the sacrifices in your life, the things you have to give up, the costs for trying to follow Jesus, all that stuff that feels overwhelming right now, you will be able to look back on and laugh. I mean, Jesus is in the resurrection, according to the Gospel of John, with these holes, and he's cheeky about it. He's, he's kind of, not, he's not joking about it, but like, Thomas isn't there, and there's the famous story of Thomas comes into the upper room, and Jesus is like, hey, you want to see the holes? You want to touch them? Like, no, that's gross. But he's trying to like, the thing that should be his greatest shame, and the thing he would not want anyone to see, is like, I don't mind. This is a part of what God was doing through me. Tim Keller wrote in The King's Cross, you will find the worst things that have ever happened to you will, in the end, only enhance your eternal delight. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar that you bear. And I know many of you have dealt with incredible pain and heartache and wounds from the past, sadness and loss that's still very raw. But Jesus is not wearing a crown in the resurrection body. He's wearing holes and scars from his crucifixion. Jesus' suffering is the source of his risen glory. And in some way, our deepest sorrows and sadness is the seed of our future greatest hope. Hope is the first. The second will be faster. It's joy. Jesus' resurrection tells us that most of our joys are too small. You know, Jesus in his incarnate body, he enjoyed physical life, right? He laughed, he ate food, he did the things we do in life. But he also went around and did things like calming a storm, healing the sick. He uh, fed the hungry. He, he took outcasts, people who were absolutely lonely, and made them friends again, brought them into community. And his first miracle, his first miracle was taking water and turning it into a lot of wine at a wedding, a wedding reception where basically he made enough wine for everyone to have a case of phenomenal wine. Hey, have a good night. Whoosh. What is he doing? He's one, affirming that this world is good and matters. But he's also, in each of these instances, whether it's healing or calming a storm or water into wine, he's taking eternity and he's bringing it into the present temporarily. So people can experience what they will one day experience in full and forever. In Jesus' physical resurrection, after Easter, he's seen and touched, has conversations with friends, he eats and drinks, and it's suggesting that there is continuity between the joys and goodness of this life and the one to come. You know, as I've understood this, it has increased my enjoyment of the joys of life. So I don't know about you, but we each have things that are like the best moments of life, the things we really love and enjoy. It might be a certain Christmas that you look back on, those vacations at the beach with your cousins and the games that you guys played. For me, a lot of my greatest joys and moments have been sledding. As a little kid in my backyard, dodging trees with the Peñas. As a teenager, all of us going to Hannah's Hill when there didn't used to be houses on it. And 
piling onto Brian Holtorf's giant inner tube. So there was like eight or nine of us, like 16-year-old boys, going down this hill so fast, hitting the bump and then flying off. And even not too long ago, when Snowmageddon happened, it was a night of sledding down the hill in my neighborhood with parents and kids till midnight. I want moments like that to return. I want them to last. I want to recreate them. We love joyful moments, but none of them last. But they are not meant to last. They're not meant to be ultimate. They're meant to be penultimate. They're meant to point us to heaven. If the resurrection is true, the greatest joys and moments in this life are actually pointing us to eternity. That an evening with friends, vacation with your cousins, sledding as a little kid, these are appetizers of the resurrection life to come. The resurrection not only gives us hope for suffering, it gives us the ability to enjoy the joys of life even more. Thirdly, it gives us peace. The messenger said to the women, he is crucified and risen just as he said. This is the gospel. The gospel means good news. The good news of Christianity is Jesus Christ was crucified and risen for you. You know, nowadays we all try to do something people have done for years, which is to try to derive meaning and purpose out of life. Now we're more bent on a couple of things. One, we, we want an identity. And we want to find meaning. And, and in that, we want to know that we matter and that we are loved and accepted. Okay, so identity and meaning, to know that you matter, that you're loved and accepted. These are things that we as human beings pursue. Nowadays, our identity is often built on self-expression. Be who you want to be, express yourself, then you will have an identity. We try to drive meaning from things that are important to us in life, like a career or some other achievements or success. Or even in kind of like a higher value way, we, we find meaning from family or friends. But here's what I've observed, and I think you'll find it in your own life is that ultimately, even those things that you pursue in life, like career success, or getting married, or having a good group of friends, those things are fulfilling, but one, they're not fulfilling enough, and they don't last. They cannot satisfy us completely. We all want to be accepted. Most religions will tell you, if you want to be accepted, follow the rules, act better, then hopefully when you die, the God or gods or judgment will accept you. Be good enough and you'll be accepted. Our modern skeptical view doesn't talk about following the rules. We talk about being yourself, but it's really a performance. And in any event, we're actually always living to perform and succeed. We're a performance-based culture, right? So if you want to be acceptable to yourself, you just need to achieve in whatever area matters to you your career, your beauty, approval of others. You can't, I can't, we can't live up to the standards of being accepted. You can't live up to the world's. You probably can't live up to your parents. You can't even live up to your own standards. But the gospel tells us the standard is not the world's or your parents, or even your own internal standards. The standard is God's standard, and you cannot live up to it. But Christ did. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. 
and he rose to give you life. He was rejected that you might be accepted. And you and I had nothing to do with it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus brings peace because it is not based on our performance. It is based on his. And it is a good news that is by grace for us. You know, in verse 7, the messenger tells the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see, you will see him. So I love this right here. The, the messenger says, Jesus wants you to know, t- tell the disciples, I'm going ahead of you, and tell Peter. Why is Peter set out from all the other disciples? Because if you know any of the story of Peter, he had denied Jesus so blatantly that his sin and offense against Jesus, kind of if if you've ever had somebody who betrayed you, Peter essentially did that with Jesus. He, He greatly offended, hurt, crushed Jesus, broke the friendship. It was all his fault. So when Jesus says, go tell the disciples, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee, if, he had, if the women had come and said, hey, disciples, Jesus is going ahead of us to Galilee, he wants to meet us there, Peter probably would have been like, you guys go ahead. I, I can't go. I, I, I can't go and be with him. I don't deserve to. And he didn't. But Jesus doesn't accept him on the basis of his deserving. He accepts him before he's even repented in order to elicit his repentance. Peter, I want to be with you. Peter, I love you. I know what you've done. Come, come. I want to be with you. There's a peace that comes from the crucified and risen Christ that is on the basis of God's grace and mercy towards us, not our performance. There's hope for facing suffering. There's joy in the greatest joys of life. There is peace internal and with God because we know that we are loved. The risen Jesus wants to be with us. His promise is the Holy Spirit. His promise is that he will be with you forever. He loves us. And it's a message we need to hear from the risen and living God. You know, eight years ago on Easter Sunday, I was preaching in Mark, And then afterwards, we had a testimony, a God in life, by a friend of mine named Brian Berry. And Brian talked about the cancer he was dealing with and experiencing God in a very risen and alive way. He said he he was three years into, into his battle with cancer, and he had just gotten more bad news that basically the cancer had spread. And he said he was very afraid, just a lot of fear racking through him, facing his own mortality, his uncertainty, about what's next, and do I have enough faith? In the midst of his anxiety and fear, there was really nowhere to turn. He said he had always had a very rational type faith, the sort of like, I know about Jesus, I know that God exists because I've read about it, but the experience emotionally had not been a part of the the first 30 plus years of his life. But in the midst of one particular day, racked in, in anxiety, just great anxiety, he called out to the Lord, And he heard God say, my son, my son. And it was the assurance that God loved him and was with him. God loved him and was with him. And it was incredibly powerful. 
It was interesting, he found out later that a friend of his had been awakened in the night and started praying for him. But she prayed not that he would be healed, but that he would experience God. That very day that he experienced God. Brian did die later that year. And I'm not going to say it was easy for him or his family or any of us going through that with him. But to experience the living God is to know that there's a God who loves you. Because Jesus rose, it is the assurance that maybe you will not experience it right now or even in the next 10 years, but there is a God who wants you to know him and experience his love for you. I've never had an empty tomb experience. I've never actually heard God's audible voice. But as I've trusted and followed and sought after God and opened my heart to him, I have known more and more the power of God's love and assurance, his with-me-ness, his presence, his guidance. He is here and he is real. And at least from my perspective, Jesus is the center of my identity. He's the center of my deepest desires, my hopes, any assurance that I actually have. I want Jesus more than anything else. He matters to me more than my career, more than money, more than actually even my family. They, you, it may all abandon me. He will never. If you're here this morning, living in a performance world, trying to be accepted, find your rest in Christ. There's peace with God through Jesus risen. If you look at your life and talk about and feel all the sacrifices and suffering, or you look ahead and you think, if I follow Jesus, do you know what it's going to cost me? I can't give up this. I can't give up that. I, it's too great. Trust him. He loves you. And he's offering you a life that far outweighs and will outlast anything you might have to give up for following him. If you live in a world filled with anxiety and fear, Remember, he is with you. He will be with you. Do not be afraid. He is risen. Let's pray. Easter morning tells us that the tomb was empty and Jesus rose from the dead. And that changes everything for the history of the world, but also for us. God, you are offering us hope to face suffering joy, unending, peace and love to face the world that we live in and our own selves. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us this Easter. Give us the ability to take one step closer to the tomb, to see the God who loves us and made us and died for us. Amen. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. my heart to fear and grace
with that grace.